Is there a place for hatred in the Christian life? This is an important question as we, we look at through the Psalms and we see all these Psalms that are known as imprecatory Psalms. This is another one of them where the psalmist is praying for the destruction of his enemies, praying against those who would harm him and seeking their destruction from God. Well, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with hatred? Well, first, there should be hatred against sin. A psalm like this, we could read it as metaphorically applying to the sin that seeks to destroy us. We have a spiritual enemy, right? We have Satan and we have our flesh that are that are both tearing us down, right? Looking to destroy us. And so we could pray these, these prayers against our own sin. But second, I think there should be anger against evil people and against destructive actions. I don't necessarily say hatred against people because in our context, hatred might mean there's there's no possibility of redemption or no prayer for redemption of those people. But I do think anger is justified, not on our own behalf, but on behalf of God who is being offended and his glory is being attacked by people who do evil things. So whether it's evil that's outside of our of our sphere, right? And maybe a different part of the world we see, like we saw these terrorist attack, attacks by Hamas, right? These are horrible things that we should say, man, God, I, I want you to destroy the, that evil organization. I want you to tear down those people who seek to harm innocent people. Or maybe it's forces in our own country. It's uh, forces of influence, maybe more than it is someone who's doing outright blatant evil. Um, we just saw our own uh, state of California pass a law where the government can take a kid as young as 12 years old without really any justification. It's, it's completely crazy um, simply to encourage certain what they would call healthcare, but what we would call uh, perversion, right? And so we see things like that happening, people who are aiming to destroy children. And so we pray against them. We pray for the destruction and the disablement of those people who do these evil things. So I think it's appropriate to pray that God would bring the evil that they do back on their own head. And again, not to just condemn them, but to say we want to have justice for those who have been harmed by all of these things. So should we pray an imprecatory psalm for someone who cuts us off in traffic? Uh, probably not, right? There's a, there's a logical end to that. But there is an appropriate place in our Christian life for anger at extreme sin and corruption and for prayers like this. But this psalm is really not just about the, David's hatred of his enemies. It's really more about their hatred of him. How should we respond when people hate us? What should be our response to hatred? This is a very challenging thing, especially when they hate us without reason. But this psalm gives us, uh, it shows us some of the complexity of the response, but it gives us a little bit of a template for responding to hatred, unreasonable hatred against us. So David shows us at times in the Psalm, compassion for his enemies. Other times he's praying for their downfall. And so we can see a mixture of both. And so we'll see in this how David gives us a model of how we should pray when people hate us. So let's jump in. I'm gonna take this in three different sections. In the first section, verses one to 10, we see David praying, rescue me from their threats. Rescue me from their threats. So first David prays that God would rescue him from the threat that is against him of these people who are planning and mobilizing against him to destroy his life. It's possible David is referring in the Psalm to some sort of international threat, that there was maybe a treaty that was made with another nation and that nation has, has violated that treaty. That could be in view here. Um, or it could just be his words for something that is more personal. We can't be totally sure. 
But look at verse 1. He says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So there's two, two main words here, two main verbs in the first verse. There's contend and there's fight, and they're sort of paralleled. Contend is, is in the context, usually used in the context of a law court. So he seems to be saying, defend me in the court of law. And then fight is obviously used on the battlefield. So again, this could refer to a legal, like a treaty that was broken and then results in warfare. Or it could just refer to the different ways that the enemy is attacking David, both in terms of trying to accuse him and shame him, as we'll see later, and physical violence, seeking opportunity to tear him down physically. He asked God to defend him in verse 2, and he asked God to go on the, on the offensive in verse 3 and to pursue these people and to tear them down. And more than that, he wants God to remind him of God's constant protection. He, he says, right, say to my soul, I am your salvation. He wants God to reiterate, to reinforce that he is going to save David, that if David has God on his side, that he doesn't have to be worried about the attacks of the enemy. So David is praying that God would remind him that he could rest secure in God's inevitable protection. Verse 4, he says, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. So he prays a few things here. He prays for public disgrace for his enemies. He prays that their their plans will be thwarted. He prays for their destruction. There's very vivid imagery in verses 5 and 6, right? Let them be like chaff. What he's saying there, chaff, if you don't know what that is, it's the light part of of wheat, right, to separate the, the husk or the chaff from the kernel. And that light part would be blown away very easily. So it would get caught up on the wind and taken away, whereas the heavier grain would stay stay put. And so he's he's saying, let them be um, something temporary, something that gets blown away. It reminds us of the words of Psalm 1. I know I'm often referring to Psalm 1, but Psalm 1, 4, he says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is what the wicked are. They are momentary. They don't have any permanence. They don't have any stability. And so David here is praying that that same reality would be true of his specific enemies. Then he says that they, he wants their way to be dark and slippery. This is a vivid image of someone being chased over you know, muddy terrain or slippery rocks or something like that, where if you've ever been if you've gone running in a dark and slippery place, you know that is a terrible experience. And so they're, they're being pursued and they're weak and defenseless against a much superior foe who is the angel of the Lord. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19 reminds us of the same truth. It says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So to live in righteousness is to have light and to be able to see where you're going. To be evil is to have darkness, to have your way clouded and to have a slippery path that's going to cause you to stumble. Now, the angel of the Lord is mentioned here in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 35. And I mentioned in last week in Psalm 34 that between Psalm 34 and Psalm 35, these are the only times that this figure, the angel of the Lord, is mentioned 
in the book of Psalms. Now, that he's a very important figure. We, I made the argument last week that this is the eternal son of God. We know him as Jesus, but this is Jesus before his incarnation. So we would call him uh, the, the son of God. And so um, this figure speaks on behalf of God. And we saw how in in the book of uh, of First Kings, how the angel of the Lord wipes out the enemies of Israel, how he destroys them with uh, 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So imagine having this kind of powerful person chasing down your enemies. Or imagine being the enemy and having that kind of a foe. The angel of the Lord, the most powerful being on earth in the universe, chasing after you. This is a terrifying thing. So David is asking for God, since he's on David's side, to act on his behalf. He goes on, verse 7, he says, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So it's clear throughout the psalm that this hatred against David is not justified. So this is one of the places he mentions it. He says two times here, he uses the phrase without cause. So there's no reason for this hatred. There's no offense David has done to aggravate this, these opponents to hate him. Now, this is important for us because if others hate you, maybe you should take a minute to honestly consider whether you're innocent, to, to really examine your life and ask God to reveal any sin in your own heart. Because very often when someone hates us, it's because we have provoked them, we have sinned against them, and we want to ignore that and move past it. But if you're like David and you truly have a just cause and you're being attacked for no reason, then this is a, this is a prayer for you. He prays praying that the schemes of evil people would come back to bite them, that the net they hid would ensnare them instead of ensnaring the righteous. This is this principle we've seen over and over again of how sin will come back to harm the person who is the perpetrator. Again, I think of Haman in the book of Esther who built a gallows or really a, an impalement stick, right? And his, his goal was to have Mordecai impaled on it and it end up, ended up in the story that Haman himself fell on, on this spike. He was the one who was killed in this gallows. And there are many pictures in scripture of people uh, who are wicked who destroy themselves by their own wickedness. It comes back to attack them. And this is true in real life as well. If you're so devoted to undermining or destroying somebody else, very often, even in the short term, you'll find out that it comes back to bite you, that you're the one who ends up destroyed. Verse 9, he says, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. So we see this positive movement at the end of this first section where he's anticipating this future salvation. He says of how my bones will, will speak. What he's referring to is his inner self there. When he uses that term for his bones, he's referring to his deepest self. Derek Kidner is a commentator and he points out that we have this saying in English that I can feel it in my bones, right? I can feel something in my bones. What we mean is just that we know something deep down inside. At the core of who we are, we know something. And that's the same idea, roughly speaking, here. And so he's, he's saying, my deepest self is crying out. And he's crying out, Lord, who is like you? Who is like you? 
This is the same language that Moses used in Exodus 15, 11, where he said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So that he says that right after Israel has been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, they were slaves, they were poor, desperate, and God delivered them through the Red Sea. And the response is to say, who is like God? Here, David has the same kind of experience. He looks at how God can save and how he does save the underdogs, right? The lowest of the low throughout history. And he proclaims that God is majestic and holy and glorious. Who is like you, God? There's no one like our God. So he prays first for God to rescue him from the threats of his enemies. And then second, in verses 11 to 18, he says, protect me from their accusations. So first it's rescue me from their threats, then it's protect me from their accusations. So he goes on to talk about how they are finding ways to undermine him and to accuse him of things that he has not done. Verses 11 and 12, he says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. So he's being accused in a court of law. There's sort of a cross-examination happening or something like that. And he says, the things you're bringing up, the questions you're asking me, I don't even know what you're talking about. And this is, again, a sure sign of someone's innocence. If they truly don't know what even the context of the accusation is, there's really no chance that they're going to be the one who perpetrated that crime. And so he's pointing to his innocence. He's saying, I don't know about these things. And there's even more injury done here because he's saying, I did them good and then they repaid me evil for it. Have you ever had that experience of doing something good for someone and then having them pay you back with evil? There's nothing more damaging than this, right? That you would give someone a gift or you go out of your way to praise or to honor someone only to have it. They are hurting you, undermining you, spitting in your face, whatever it might be. And so if you've had that, you know just how incredibly offensive that is. And then David turns to his own actions toward them when they were vulnerable. He says in verse 13, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. So he says, when they were suffering, when they were needy, I was sympathetic to them. I was compassionate. Notice the extreme measures he goes to when they're in this sickness. He puts sackcloth on to express his sorrow. He does fasting and praying to express his intercession for them. He greets, he gre- sorry, grieves for them as he would for his own family, which expresses his sincerity. This isn't an act. He really cares about them. He's treating their burdens as his own, right? David shows how righteous and honorable he was in the way he treated these people, but then the way they treated him was the exact opposite, verse 15. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they they gnash at me with their teeth. So he's saying, I was compassionate to them. But when I was suffering, when when I stumbled, meaning there was some sort of calamity that hit David, they were rejoicing at it. They were excited about it. They were happy that I was suffering. So David looks to the only place he can look, and he looks to God. And again, at the end of this section, just like the first section, there is a positive movement here. He says in verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from the destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. 
So in the face of hatred of others, we have to remember that God is the only one who can fix our situation. He's the only one who has the power to undo false accusations. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been falsely accused, you know the the more you argue against it, the more guilty you look. Right? The more you say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, very often you look like you're just trying to, uh, you know, trying to divert attention or to say that you're the victim. It's impossible. If you've been accused, it's impossible really to truly defend yourself. At least it often feels that way in the situation. So the solution always is to look to God. doesn't mean you can't act in some way, of course, but we have to ultimately look to God. He's the only one who can make the truth shine through ultimately. He's the only one, and often it takes a long time. But if you're in the midst of that situation where you're being attacked by someone unfairly, wait on God, look to him and trust that he's going to, over time, vindicate your cause and show the truth in in your situation. And of course, he ends in verse 18 with that positive note, right? He says, I will thank you in the great congregation and the mighty throng. I will praise you. So he's looking forward to a time when he's going to be surrounded by people who are rejoicing with him and praising God with one voice. He looks forward to when God's people worship him together. So he prays first for God to rescue him from their threats. Second, that God would protect him from their accusations. And then last, in verses 19 to 28, he prays, vindicate me from their gloating. Vindicate me from their gloating. Look at verse 19. He says, let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. So here David's enemies are gloating. The, the idea of winking the eye in verse 19 is, refers to planning deceit. That's kind of the idea. And so um, he's praying that God, to God that they won't be able to accomplish their plans and then to gloat over him in the success of their deception. When he says, aha, aha, in verse 21, it's kind of weird to us, but this is them gloating because they believe that they've caught David, that they've won against him. You know, one commentator said that this, this phrase, aha, aha, it's kind of like public finger pointing, saying, we've got you, we've captured you. They believe they're going to win. But David prays to God to vindicate him in the face of their gloating. Verse 22, he says, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. Again, the solution here is not personal vengeance. This is an important important reality for, especially for us as Christians, right? We're not part of a, a nation that is chosen by God. And so um, we don't have our own government. And so how do we deal with situations where we're falsely accused? Well, we look to God to bring vengeance. We look to God to ultimately sort these things out. So here he's asking not for personal vengeance, vengeance, but for vindication. He's saying, vindicate me, which is really what he means when he says that is he's saying, judge me. He wants God to pronounce a judgment over him and to clear him of wrong. So the idea of vindication is, is appropriate, right? He's not asking for God to judge him in a negative sense. That's how we often think of it. He's saying, vindicate my cause. And this vindication happens in verse 24. He says, according to God's righteousness. 
He's not asking for, for God to suspend morality or to give a shifting standard of morality for him. He's asking God to apply his eternal righteous standard and saying, on that basis, I want you to clear me of these wrongs, of these accusations that have been leveled against me. Let's, let's skip to the end of the passage and we'll see how he ends here. Again, the third, third section, it ends with this really positive movement. Verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Let my tongue, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. I love how he reminds himself here. And if you, if you go back, right, we saw in verse 18, it's the same thing. He reminds himself here that there are people that are on his side, that there are a lot of people. It's easy when you get into a really dark place, you feel like you're being attacked by everyone. It's, it's easy to really believe that there's no one on your side. There's no one who cares about the truth. But that's not true. It wasn't true for David. It's almost always not true for us either. So David reminds himself that there are people who love righteousness and want God's cause to be vindicated. And ultimately, more importantly than these people on his side, God is on David's side. Because he has been careful not to do the things he's been accused of, he knows that God's going to vindicate him and protect him. Um, Because David is with God, he can be confident in the midst of all these attacks that they won't ultimately hurt him. I love this declaration that he gives here, right? Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. That word welfare is one that you should maybe highlight or or underline because it's the word shalom. It's the word that we usually translate as peace, but it refers, shalom refers to wholeness. It refers to everything being set right. And so God cares about and delights in the shalom of David. And so he's going to fix this entire situation, right? It's inevitable that one day God will vindicate David's cause completely and that he will vindicate his people and bring peace and wholeness to his people as well, even when the world schemes to destroy that peace. So this is a great psalm, a great encouragement to us, and I think we can pray through this when we're going through a very difficult time. So much of this ultimately, though, reminds us of Jesus, and Jesus saw himself and his followers in this psalm as well. If you go all the way to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, you'll see Jesus actually quoted verse 19 of this text in his words to his disciples. I'll read the, I'll read the longer quote because it's good to, to see how he's applying this text. In John 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done these among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So at the end, he quotes verse 19 of Psalm 35. And he says, this has to be fulfilled. 
It's it's true of the wicked in David's time against him as that as the anointed one of God, the Messiah at that period in time, and Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, as the true Messiah, the one who brings in the promise of God. When people see righteousness, they very often hate it because it conflicts with their own values, and so they attack it. And that's nowhere seen more clearly than in Jesus Christ, who was accused of all of these evil things that he did not do and ultimately condemned to death because of it. So he reminds us, you're going to be hated too, right? You're going to be attacked as well. But if you look to Jesus and the fact he's he's already solved our greatest problem, which is not external enemies, but our own sin, he's given us forgiveness and grace because of his sacrifice on the cross, then you can know that he's going to take care of everything else as well. If he's defeated sin and death, he will take care of every other enemy that raises itself against God and against his people. So trust and look to him.